Hi, friends, and welcome to the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Just a reminder that On Becoming is on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. Our email address is OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions or comments, send them our way. If you find the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Many thanks to those of you who've subscribed or followed us, to those who've written, and to those who have decided to support us. We are now a couple of weeks away from our first year anniversary, and I have the sense that we are building a community. In the previous episode, I began our discussion of unconditional forgiveness. If you haven't already listened to that episode, let me suggest that you do so, because this episode builds on that one. Unconditional forgiveness is the kind of forgiveness that requires no apologies, or remorse, or change in character, or really anything. It is simply the insistence that you should forgive. Such insistence often comes with the warning that if you fail to forgive, you will be left in a state of bitterness and anger. In today's episode, our focus will be on the supposed dichotomy between forgiving and bitterness. I want to argue that not forgiving someone does not mean that one is consigned to anger and resentment, partly because there isn't anything wrong with being angry or being resentful. To be sure, wallowing in anger and resentment is unhealthy, and yeah, you should avoid that. If you're wondering why I'm concerned about such a thing, the answer is that I'm speaking from experience. All of us have been hurt in different ways, and alas, all of us have hurt other people. Simply being in any kind of social relationship means that such a thing is always possible. Further, it's also the case that you may do or say something offensive that you didn't even know was offensive. In such circumstances, it's sometimes the case that you should have known that what you were saying or doing was offensive, but it's also the case that sometimes you say something you consider to be friendly or loving, and it is perceived very differently by someone else. Yet my concern is really about what you can or should do in the face of being hurt by someone who either realizes that he or she is hurting you or by people who are clueless to have figured that out. I think all of us have been in the place where hurt has been done. But the person who hurt you thinks that they are carrying out God's will or they simply don't see what they've done as hurtful or perhaps they simply think of it as tough love. What do you do in a case like this? How do you move forward? If you've been listening to earlier episodes of the podcast, you know that these are not theoretical questions for me. To be honest, part of doing this podcast is to share my own journey of figuring out what to do. Last week, we talked about ways people avoid apologizing, and to be clear, pretending to apologize is often the shrewdest way. You should absolutely not fall for pretend apologies. As we talked about in the episode earlier this week, what Luke reports Jesus is saying seems to leave open the possibility of forgiveness without repentance or apology, whereas the passage in Matthew in effect forbids that. At this point, I'd like to pick up where we left off, but I'll begin with the very last part of the previous episode. We were discussing the book by Lewis B. Smeads titled Forgive and Forget, subtitled Healing the Hurts We Don't Deserve. Smeads devotes an entire chapter to the topic of whether forgiving might be dangerous. He admits that forgiving then is a serious risk, that's a quote from him, but the thrust of the chapter is that it's a risk worth taking. Well, he grants that 
And again, I'm quoting, forgiveness cheaply given is dangerous, let us face it. He goes on to argue that, again, to use the chapter title, forgiving is a better risk. He suggests using what he calls redemptive remembering, which he characterizes as a healing way to remember the wrongs of our irreversible past. He expands upon this by saying, redemptive memory is focused on love emerging from the ashes, light that sheds darkness, hope that survives remembered evil. Yet the idea of love emerging from being wronged without any expectation of a change on the part of the wrongdoer sounds like a non-starter. It fails utterly to take into account the reality of unconditional forgiveness. Instead of forgiving those who do not change their minds and thus change their actions, one is better off distancing oneself from such people, as Jesus suggests. But that also means that one should stand up to anyone who tries to force forgiveness upon us. There's no reason to be victimized a second time by what I call forgiveness oppression. As Sharon Lamb notes, Historically, victims have been blamed much too readily for the crimes of perpetrators, and since William Ryan's seminal book, Blaming the Victim, the public has become much more aware of our tendency to believe that, th that most abuse is deserved. Lamb published those words 25 years ago, and I believe that much shifting of blame from victims to perpetrators has taken place in those years. However, the reality is that Many victims are still treated by many others as deserving their victimhood. Some of they have done something that resulted in their victimization. For those who complain of sexual harassment, the usual response has been one that the harassed invited or provoked the harassment. Similarly, those of us in the LGBTQ plus community are often given the impression that our victimhood could simply be stopped if we were to repent of being who we are. One cannot help but think of the usual trope in Hollywood movies in which the gay character either has a horrible life or commits suicide, or more likely both. Alas, that stereotype is all too often borne out in reality. Here I want to turn to Desmond Tutu's book, No Future Without Forgiveness. Given that Tutu has long been a supporter of the LGBTQ plus community, I don't want to appear ungrateful. Moreover, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is considered by many to be a remarkable political achievement. Yet my question is, at what cost did such reconciliation come? Or put in different terms, was there really any reconciliation? In terms that sound remarkably like those of Smeed's, Tutu writes, to forgive is not just to be altruistic. It is the best form of self-interest. One might well respond in agreement with Tutu. Isn't it a good thing to be healed and set free? Probably, though the answer is going to depend on the context. The real problem with this quotation is that it makes forgiveness into a self-help tool. It's something that you give yourself. It's the moral equivalent of making yourself a cup of warm cocoa and curling up near the fire on a cold day. On one website, we find this explanation why forgiveness is good for us. There is, however, a great deal of scientific evidence that does exist on the health effects of depression, anxiety, and anger, byproducts of the hurt and betrayal it felt when someone wronged us. These include increased blood pressure, increased heart rate, the release of hormones that trigger flight or flight reactions, headache, stomach problems, and sleeplessness, all occurring whenever we allow the painful episode to rewind and replay over and over in our minds. One needs to escape from anxiety and anger that raises your blood pressure and leads to insomnia. Forgiveness is all about you. Except, of course, that it isn't. 
One reason is simply that, as I've mentioned, forgiveness presupposes a communal context. It concerns your relation to the person who hurt you. Often that relationship is bound up with relationships with other people, meaning that there can be many people involved in that hurt. Whether we want to be involved or not, most of us find ourselves connected to hurts inflicted by other people that hurt us indirectly. Having a friend who's been a victim usually means that one shares in that pain. Thus, forgiveness is never simply about you. However, there's another sense of it not being about you that particularly worries me. Other people can try to make you forgive. Robert D. Enright says that an offended person who refuses to forgive until certain contingencies are met suffers twice. To forgive, then, is to show self-respect. Enright claims that allowing the other person's harm to make us angry shows a lack of self-respect. But his more hidden agenda is highly coercive in nature. As a good person, you should forgive. Well, it's true that allowing yourself to become bitter and resentful is probably not going to be a good thing. One can certainly choose not to forgive without being consumed by anger. Enright presents a false dilemma, the fallacy that only two extremes are possible. You may well decide that you won't forgive, but you have other things to do, and so you won't spend much time thinking about the wrong done to you. Enright appeals to the victim's own happiness. You'll be happier if you simply forgive. But perhaps that's not correct. You may find forgiving someone who has hurt you to be unpleasant, which, to be honest, it should be. I worry that dispensing forgiveness to people who aren't going to change and may in fact hurt you again puts the victim in a really difficult space. Yet, that is the least offensive form of forgiveness oppression. Another person writing on forgiveness says that it reflects a moral failure for victims to withhold forgiveness unreasonably from offenders who have done all they can to expiate their guilt. Forgiveness may not be obligatory, but neither is it always supererogatory. Forgiveness is something victims ought to give, even if they are not obligated to give it. Perhaps the key lies in the phrase, done all they can. Repentance is certainly the main expectation of doing all one can, but in the case of Enright, he thinks that even incest and rape victims should forgive without requiring any repentance of any kind. As it turns out, so do the slave owners in the southern United States. And so do the preachers of unconditional forgiveness say to us queers, just forgive. I don't want any part in that. Let's go back to Tutu. Earlier in his career, he agreed to the Kairos document drafted by the South African theologians in 1985. Tutu is considered the principal designer of the statement, which reads in part, No reconciliation is possible in South Africa without justice. What that means in practice is that no reconciliation, no forgiveness, and no negotiations are possible without repentance. The biblical teaching on reconciliation and forgiveness make it quite clear that nobody can be forgiven and reconciled with God unless he or she repents of their sins. Nor are we expected to forgive the unrepentant sinner. When he or she repents, we must be willing to forgive 70 times 7. But before that, we are expected to preach repentance to those who sin against us or against anyone. Reconciliation, forgiveness, and negotiations will become our Christian duty in South Africa only when the apartheid regime shows signs of genuine repentance. There's no question, then, that the Kairos theologians held a position exactly like the one I've argued that Jesus teaches as portrayed in the Gospels. 
With repentance, forgiveness becomes a duty. Without repentance, forgiveness becomes an impossibility, at least according to Matthew. What changed for Tutu? We can see the evolution in his thinking that appears in the Promotion of National Unity and Reconciliation Act, a kind of curious title for an official government proclamation. There we're told there is a need for understanding, but not for vengeance, a need for reparation, but not for retaliation, a need for Ubuntu, and not victimization. According to Tutu, Ubuntu is very difficult to render into a Western language. It speaks of the very essence of being human. It also means my humanity is caught up, inextricably bound up in theirs. It is not, I think, therefore I am. It says, rather, I am human because I belong. Yet if that's true, then we have even more reason to think that forgiveness is not just about me. It cannot be simply about what I do. It is always about what we do. Moreover, it is difficult to see how mere understanding will fix the problem. Yes, vengeance is by definition bad, but surely there needs to be more than understanding for unity and reconciliation. Are we supposed to understand that the wrongdoer had a bad day at the office? Further, while retaliation is taken to be a bad thing, how exactly does it differ from reparation? Yet the problem becomes particularly acute in the last phrase about Ubuntu. For Tutu, Ubuntu is another name for forgiveness, and Ubuntu is quite demanding. Here's what he says. We say that a human being is a human being because he belongs to community, and harmony is the essence of that community. So Ubuntu actually demands that you forgive, because resentment and anger and desire for revenge undermine harmony. In our understanding, when somebody doesn't forgive, we say that person does not have Ubuntu. That is to say, he is not really human. Woe be to anyone who fails to forgive. According to Tutu, you're not even human. If this is not forgiveness oppression, then I don't know what would qualify. One is exhorted to forgive with the alternative of being becoming an animal. My apologies to all animals. Tutu claims that Social harmony is for us the sumum bonum, the greatest good. Anything that subverts or undermines this sought-after good is to be avoided like the plague. However, we're left to wonder, if social harmony is the greatest good, it would seem like resentment has no place. In effect, then, forgiveness is a requirement. Nietzsche is perhaps the leading expert on what he always calls, using the French term, resentiment. When Nietzsche speaks of Rizontement and the genealogy of morality, he makes it clear that he has the ancient Hebrews in mind as the inventors of such an emotion. He claims that they gave birth to slave morality in which the virtues of the powerful are transformed into vices, and the vices of the powerful are transformed into virtues. On Nietzsche's view, Christianity picks up on this idea, though in a less creative but ultimately much more influential way. Whereas the ancient Greek and Roman nobles thought that good equals noble equals powerful equals beautiful equals happy equals beloved of God. The Hebrews inverted these values in such a way that, and now I'm quoting again from Nietzsche, the miserable alone are good, the poor, powerless, lowly alone are the good, the suffering, deprived, sick, ugly are also the only pious, the only blessed in God, for them alone is their blessedness. 
One could question Nietzsche's contention that this inversion is what actually happened historically, though that would take us off in a whole different direction. Clearly, Nietzsche is greatly overstating this point, which is to say that you would have difficulty finding any theologian who actually says that only miserable or poor or powerless people find any sense of blessedness. However, the reality is that Judaism has long been particularly attentive to the stranger, the widow, and the orphan, thus people on the margins of society, and the powerless. These same emphases are clearly evident in Jesus' teaching. He has, for instance, an extraordinary amount to say about the abuse of the poor. In the rise of victimhood culture, Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning argue that we've moved from what they would call honor and dignity cultures to what they now call a victimhood culture. They don't cite Nietzsche nor consider the possibility that Christian culture does privilege victims. If Nietzsche's right that Christian culture begins as an inversion of noble values, then it would be not very strange for those who live in a society that's been highly shaped by Judeo-Christian values and who see themselves reflected in Jesus' teachings to speak up about their condition. It is very hard to see how protesting marginalization goes against Jewish and Christian morality since it is a theme at the heart of both Christian and Hebrew Bibles. The real question, then, is who is being marginalized? According to some American evangelicals, it's they who are being persecuted and denied their full religious liberties. However, much of the demand for religious liberty by evangelicals is precisely the liberty to oppress those whom they do not like. With that in mind, it's hardly surprising that such liberties are being questioned by those who are marginalized by such liberties. Nietzsche's conception of ressentiment is assumed to be essentially negative for reasons that are immediately apparent. Nietzsche writes, The slave revolt in morality begins when ressentiment, beings denied the true reaction, that of the deed, who recover their losses only through an imaginary revenge. Drawing on Nietzsche, another author describes ressentiment as follows. Thirst for revenge is the most important source of ressentiment. The desire for revenge, in contrast with all active and aggressive impulses, be they friendly or hostile, is also such a reactive impulse. However, neither Nietzsche nor Scheler, the person I just quoted, argue for their assumption that revenge is the source of ressentiment, nor do they provide any evidence for the claim that ressentiment and revenge naturally go together. In sharp contrast to both of them, P.F. Strassen takes resentment to be a reaction to injury or indifference. It is simply one of many reactive attitudes. He lists things like gratitude, resentment, forgiveness, love, and hurt feelings. On Strassen's view, to be resentful of someone is simply a reaction to what they have done, as opposed to being grateful or forgiving toward them. Although Strassen makes no reference to Adam Smith or Joseph Butler, their views regarding resentment are similar. Consider what Adam Smith says about resentment. That's, by the way, the Adam Smith that we associate with capitalism. The insolence and brutality of anger in the same manner, when we indulge in fury without check or restraint, is of all objects the most detestable. But we admire that noble and generous resentment which governs its pursuit of the greatest injuries, not by the rage which they are apt to excite in the breast of the sufferer, but by the indignation which they naturally call forth in that of the impartial spectator, which never, 
even in thought, attempts any greater vengeance, nor desire to inflict any greater punishment than what every indifferent person would rejoice to see executed. Those words were published in 1854, over three decades before Nietzsche's pronouncements on raisonnement. Although Nietzsche was clearly familiar with overarching ideas in Smith's thought, there's no reason to think that Nietzsche was in any sense influenced by Smith's conception of resentment. Nor does he seem to have been influenced by Butler, that's Bishop Butler, who defines resentment as, quote, a legitimate and valuable form of anger responding to perceived moral wrongs. For Butler, there is no problem with having resentment. The problem is only if one is consumed by resentment and it causes one to act irresponsibly. More recently, another philosopher has argued, just as the indignation or guilt over the mistreatment of others stands as emotional testimony that we care about them and their rights, so does resentment stand as emotional testimony that we care about ourselves and our rights. Resentment is designed to support three values, self-respect, self-defense, and respect for the moral order. Similarly, another philosopher points out that in expressing resentment, we are demonstrating our commitment to certain moral standards as regulative of social life. Whereas resentment is usually taken to be grounded in spite, envy, hypersensitivity, malice, and hatred, the reality is that it need not be grounded in any of these things. Margaret Walker makes it clear that any resentful person may not be preoccupied. The aim of resentment, she says, is ideally to activate protective, reassuring, or defensive responses in some individuals or in a community that can affirm the victim is within the scope of the community's protective responsibilities or that the resenter is in fact competent in grasping and applying the community's shared moral norms. The transgressor can reassure the wrong party and also the community by getting the message. She might respond with acceptance of rebuke, with evidence of remorse or shame, and might offer apology or amends. For Nietzsche, those who fall into resentment are denied the possibility of taking any real action. They're only capable of a reaction to what's been done to them. But given what these various folks have said that I've quoted, if resentment as a genuine reactive attitude to the actions of a transgressor, then resentment is indeed an action. Moreover, it can be seen as grounded in a sense of shared moral norms. To be sure, while Nietzsche is surely right that, quote, the human being of raisonnement could be neither sincere nor naive nor honest and frank with himself, there is no reason to conclude that resentment is necessarily self-deceptive. Of course, Nietzsche hardly believes that only victims of raisonnement engage in self-deception. Indeed, he believes that we all, to one extent or another, are engaged in deceiving ourselves. Further, when Nietzsche says that nothing burns one up faster than the effects of raisonnement, one could agree that perhaps certain kinds of resentment have this quality, without agreeing with Nietzsche that raisonnement has this result universally. To make a universal argument that raisonnement necessarily has this outcome would require, well, at least a good deal of statistical evidence. The reality is that resentment is a relatively complex emotion that is largely unavailable to most species given their brain development. Having resentment turns out to be extremely human. The question is always, is such resentment justified? 
I think it is in some cases. Well, it may lead to thoughts of revenge, even such thoughts may themselves be justified. I find it hard to believe that the desire for revenge is either categorically wrong or something that should simply be eliminated. For such desires arise in regard to an injustice in which the balance between individuals has been unsettled. Earlier we noted that Tutu had once subscribed to the idea that forgiveness is dependent upon repentance or remorse or change of mind and character. In his later career, however, Tutu abandons this position. In his role in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, he championed the idea that the opposite of forgiveness was the demonic other, anger and resentment. We might say here that a distinction between resentment and resentment needs to be made. Yet even that assumption is questionable. One of the philosophers that I quoted before says that Resentiment is, by definition, an irrational and base passion. It means, roughly, spiteful and malicious envy. It thus makes no sense to speak of rational or justified or honorable resentiment. If we go back to the original meaning of resentiment, it means memory of an injury, a grievance. To assume that all memories of an injury are irrational, malicious, and spiteful is to assume, I think, far too much. There's nothing irrational in affirming that one has been wrong. One can, to be sure, do so in a malicious and spiteful way. But I think the onus is on the one who makes the charge that raisonnement is necessarily characterized by malice and spite to show that in each and every case, that is the case. Further, I'm not sure that malice or spite as reactions to a specific injury are necessarily bad emotions. R.G. Collingwood writes the following, Malice, the desire that others, especially those better than ourselves, should suffer, is a perpetual source of pleasure to man. But malice need not be so universally nor hierarchically defined. However, even then I have doubts that people are necessarily wrong in feeling malice towards those who are systematically and intentionally privileged by a given society. Further, while the big French dictionary La Rousse uses terms like animosité, hostilité, and rancour to describe resentiment. It's hardly clear that animosity, hostility, and rancor are emotions that are always necessarily inappropriate. It is all too easy to imagine situations in which these responses are not merely acceptable, but expected emotions. Aristotle makes the point that anger is often justified. He writes, the man who is angry at the right things and with the right people, and further, as he ought, when he ought, and as long as he ought, is praised. This will be the good-tempered man, then, since good temper is praised. For the good-tempered man tends to be unperturbed and not led by passion, but to be angry in the manner at the things and for the length of time that reason dictates. But he is thought to err rather in the direction of deficiency. For the good-tempered man is not revengeful, but rather tends to forgive. Here's where I want to end. For everything there is a season. My contention here is that as long as the perpetrator has not asked forgiveness, nor shown remorse, nor shown a change in character and actions, the season for forgiveness probably has not come. One may choose to forgive, but one should be very clear about the ramifications of that choice. Perhaps there will be a time when we can put animosity and rancor aside. 
But forgiveness oppression is no reason to do so. Indeed, forgiveness oppression is simply another attack on someone who's already been victimized. If there's anything that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission shows us, it is that forcing people to forgive results in neither truth nor reconciliation. We are wise to withhold our forgiveness until we have good reasons to extend it. Whether that time will come remains to be seen. That's all for today's episode. If you found today's episode helpful or interesting, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through the PayPal app or paypal.com. The username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Alice Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.